welcome to Tea with PILPG and our premier podcast. I'm Paul Williams, the founder and president of the Public International Law and Policy Group, PILPG for short. PILPG is a global pro bono law firm that provides free legal assistance to parties involved in peace negotiations, drafting post-conflict constitutions, and facilitating the prosecution of war criminals and transitional justice. We have decided that over the course of a series of podcasts, we will be providing information and discussion on excellence in professionalism for young professionals, and also a variety of conversations on thematic issues such as how to negotiate a ceasefire, how to develop a human rights mechanism in a peace negotiation, and some of the core elements of drafting a post-conflict constitution. And we are going to do this around tea. Today, we're drinking Turkish tea, and I have to say, a lot of sugar. And we'll begin the discussion with how we start an own NGO. How do young professionals start their own nonprofit organizations? I'm joined today by three exciting young professionals, Christy, Sam, and Meg. Christy, introduce yourself. Tell us about yourself. Sure, I'm Christy, and I am a program associate with PILPG. And here, I support our overseas training programs. Before I came to PILPG, I was a Peace Corps volunteer in Namibia, where I worked with the Ministry of Education. And prior to that, I was an AmeriCorps volunteer, where I worked on capacity building with organizations here in the US. Uh, in the future, I would love to go back overseas, and I would like to work with local grassroots NGOs and work on capacity building with them. So there's a potential for a new NGO there. Fantastic. Sam, tell us about yourself. Sure, so I'm a senior research associate with PALPG here in DC. Um, my practice areas are um, peace negotiations, post-conflict, constitution drafting, and trans transitional justice issues. So it's sort of all over the board and also a little bit of a mouthful. Um, my professional experience prior to PILPG is somewhat random. I, uh, I worked for a sustainable development nonprofit in, in Ecuador, basically working with the community and giving them sort of providing them you know what they felt like they needed so it ranged from everything from you know English lessons to uh, health classes to I, I even taught children's art for a little bit so uh, that was a good experience. Well, that's a skill set. Right? Um, also I you know I worked as a dive master in Egypt as part of the random experience and uh, I was a bartender and banquet server in San Francisco before coming out to DC um, as far as future aspirations, that's something I'm still sort of developing uh, or narrowing down exactly uh, what I would like to do. But I, I would like to continue working in public international law and policy, and I know that's sort of the name of our organization, so it's cheating a little bit. You're <laughs> in the right place. <laughs> right. Um, but yeah, I, I love the work that we do, and I love this type of work, and so I'd like to find a way to possibly um, be able to continue that and maybe maybe start my own NGO, not doing exactly what we do, um, but something along those lines uh, one day. Great. Megan, tell us about yourself and about your future aspirations. Yes. Uh, I am, like Sam, a senior research associate. Uh, I'm primarily focusing on post-conflict constitutions, and before coming here, I did a bunch of odd jobs in New York City and then uh, worked for three years for a human rights legal nonprofit 
where I worked with human rights mechanisms in Europe, Africa, and at the UN. Uh, in the future, well, let's see. Um, I would ideally like to uh, either be a lawyer at a nonprofit or kind of start my own and take over and rebrand already existing nonprofits that I believe in, uh, something along those lines. And ideally, it would have something to do with both human rights and incorporate art or theater. Fantastic. Well, it seems that being a bartender is a prerequisite for starting your own NGO. Um, I never actually managed to be a bartender, but I did deal blackjack uh, in South Lake Tahoe at Harvey's Casino before I, uh, after undergraduate and before law school. So I think, uh, I think the social skills from bartending and dealing blackjack are, are probably essentials to starting your own, uh, your own nonprofit. Well, let's go ahead and let's, uh, let's start this conversation. Who wants to kick it off with the first question? Yeah, Paul, thanks so much for having us. You know, you have often talked about starting an NGO and just encouraging young people to go for it and do it. And I would love for you to explain kind of what leads you to that belief that we should start our own NGOs and what kind of experience have you had with that? Okay. The reason I'm very enthusiastic about young professionals starting their own nonprofit organizations is that's how you make a difference in this world. Whenever I'm interacting, doing career counseling with a young professional, they always say, I want to make a difference. And then they start talking about working for the big institutions. And that's perfectly fine. That's great. But one of the ways to make a real impact, to make a real difference, is to leverage your skill set, leverage the skill set of your friends to scale your impact. And you do that by building your own entity, your own institution. I stumbled upon the idea of creating a global pro bono law firm. Uh, early in my career, I was a lawyer at the State Department dealing with the dissolution of Yugoslavia and the former Soviet Union. Um, I left to pursue a PhD at the University of Cambridge. And after being at Cambridge for a while, the, um, the Bosnians, they rang me up and they said, we're heading to Dayton for peace negotiations. Would you like to be our lawyer? So I borrowed my wife's credit card, booked a ticket to <laughs> Dayton, Ohio from London, and showed up in the Bosnian delegation as their lawyer. I immediately realized I was in way over my head. I was young, <laughs> a young 30-something public international lawyer uh, advising the Bosnians on ceasefires, the military annex, human rights, constitution. So I started to ring up all of my old friends who had left the Department of State and were teaching. Mm. And by having four or five of them on speed dial throughout the negotiations, I was able to give top flight legal assistance to the Bosnians, mostly because of what my colleagues knew and their strengths and their research interests and their previous experience. I was able to bundle that together for the Bosnians. Afterwards, a number of other parties involved in conflict said, hey, Paul, um, you look kind of young, but that firm that you work for, um, do you think they'd be willing to give us some pro bono legal assistance on our international disputes or our peace negotiations or our constitution drafting? And I said, yeah, sure, sounds great. And then I called up the 10 friends that I had been working with in Dayton and said, hey, how about we create a global pro bono law firm? And that's how we got started with the NGO PILPG. Wow, what a great story. That's an amazing story, and you... It just seems like you fell into it. How, what steps did you take to go from getting that call to and calling up your friends to kind of establishing yourself as the excellence and the great um, organization that PLPG is today? Looking back those 20 years, 
there were three important skill sets or three important ingredients of creating a global pro bono law firm. Uh, the first was a mentor, the second was vision, and the third was ignorance. So um, we'll, uh, <laughs> we'll get to the first two. Uh, a mentor. You need someone out there who's been through it all. Uh, Ambassador Morta Bromowitz, uh, who was the president of the Carnegie Endowment at the time, was my mentor. And he had the vision, he, he, was, he, was, he had the vision, or he had, Morta Bromowitz, the president of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, uh, was my mentor at the time. And he shared with me the secrets of the trade. He shared with me how Washington, how the international community operated, and if I was going to create my own global pro bono law firm, what would be the environment in which I would be operating. So it matches the young dynamism enthusiasm with what I like to call a gray hair who's been there before, who knows the terrain, and who you're not in direct competition with. The second thing you need is a vision. You need to come up with an idea of a global pro bono law firm, um, some other type of high-impact idea that will attract not only pro bono clients, but will also attract those willing to volunteer their time. And when you do finally secure funding, that will attract individuals that will want to make a shift to come work with you on your institution. But most importantly, you need to be ignorant. You need to be ignorant of the challenges, the barriers, the naysayers. You can make a really long list of why a 30-year-old can't create their own global pro bono law firm in the niche area of peace negotiations, war crimes prosecution, and post-conflict constitutions. You need to be unaware of all of that, that barrier, that wall against entrepreneurship. And you just need to build it, put in the energy, get some amazing friends to work with you, and go forward. Yeah, I, mean, I feel like sitting here we could probably come up with our own list, and then other times I feel like, you know, if we sort of acted like ourselves, we could, you know, harness that, that ignorance that you're sort of talking about, <laughs> you know, that, that, that sort of ignorant courage, you know. Great phrase, right. harness the ignorance. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm sort of wise, so it's, it was really, it, it seems to me very organic how, how this all happened for you. And you sort of had a client lined up, really, I mean, you had, you had the work and then you started your NGO. And I'm wondering, I mean, for us, I mean, I don't know about you guys. I mean, if you have clients lined up, let me know. But for people who, who don't necessarily have, a, you know, a client lined up, I mean, do you, do you feel like there needs to be a clear need for the work, bef you know, before you start the NGO? Or could you, do you think it's possible for us to be sitting here clientless, you know, with our great idea, um, what we think is a great idea to then you know start our own NGO. Well, Sam, there's there's two ways of answering that question. I think the the first one is quite simply, you'd be surprised how many parties to conflict, to peace negotiations, to post conflict drafting constitution there are out there. Currently, I think there's nearly seventy parties involved in self determination conflicts. There's probably a good dozen or more post-conflict constitutions that are being drafted at this point in time. I'm constantly astounded about the need um, for pro bono public international legal assistance around the globe. 
And so landing that first client is, is difficult, but it's no difficult than landing a first client if you were a young partner at, at a law firm or if you were working at some other entity and you were told to develop a book of business, being a paying business or, or being at pro bono. Um, and so it's worth spending some time mapping out um, in our case, it's, it's conflict resolution in public international law and peace talks, mapping out the various conflicts around the globe and, and using that as a way for client development. You'd also be surprised if you give away top-notch legal assistance on a pro bono basis, you'll get clients. When I was working with, discussing with my wife, who was a management consultant, starting up PILPG, she said, yeah, whatever you do is great, just make sure you do it pro bono. I said, yeah, yeah, I know, we're committed to public interest. She's like, no, you're 30 years old. No one's going to pay you to do public international law and peace negotiations. Make sure you do it for free, and you might get some clients. And it was, it was an important suggestion, because a lot of folks will want to build a business early on, and then you become captured by selling the widget or whatever it is that you're, you're creating. Um, if you do it pro bono, there's a tremendous need for pro bono legal services. Um, out there in the global community. We all know in the local community, but also in the global community. The other thing is it should be client-driven. Get your clients and then build it as you're assisting your clients. Most of the young professionals <clears throat> that I work with and who've, who've had nonprofits who've failed have tried to build the perfect nonprofit, <sighs> and now let's go forth and do something. And you spend so much time operating in a hypothetical context that you never really get off the ground. So we moved forward with the Bosnians as pro bono clients, followed quickly by the Macedonians, um, the Armenians, and the, um, the Montenegrins, and then we rapidly put in place our 501c3 nonprofit status. We built an advisory board of senior professionals. Um, we were um, sponsored by the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, who brought me in as a senior, as a senior research associate so that we could nurture PLPG there. But we were doing that all the time that we were servicing our clients on peace negotiations and, and conflict resolution. And that gives you the energy and the drive to fill out the 501c3 paperwork and to figure out all of those regulatory hoops that you have to go through to be a nonprofit because you've got to get it done right away because you're out there already doing this type of work. You know, what you were saying before about doing things for free makes me wonder about another really big component of starting an NGO, which is how do you get the money to provide your services for free? Where does the funding come from? Yeah, it's very important when you're starting up your nonprofit organization that you think about ways to sustain your nonprofit. Someone the other day was telling me the average lifespan of a nonprofit is one to five years. Um, PLPG mm. is clipping into its 20th year. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> we're gonna have a birthday party. We should have cake, cake and candles at our next, at our next podcast. Um, and we provide, every year we provide over $20 million of pro bono legal assistance to, to our clients. And it's because it's a mix of, of leveraging. Oftentimes, leveraging of resources. So we have assistance from um, over 12 of the top 15 uh, international law firms that do pro bono work for us. We have a, a spread of funding from uh, nonprofit, uh, other, other foundations, uh, individual uh, trusts, as well as uh, a variety of, of, of governments. And we have um, a quite a substantial contribution from academic institutions as well in terms of nonprofit assistance. But you want to think of ways of generating value to your nonprofit so that you can then generate value to your clients. Now most people will sit down and they will say, where do we fundraise? Where do we find money? That's important, but that's only a small part 
of the value that other institutions or entities can add. Is there office space that can be donated? Are there young lawyers or other young professionals that can be seconded to your organization? In our case, are there law firms that do pro bono work for us that we then roll into the package of pro bono work that we're providing for our clients? And you want to not be shy. You want to shake your network. One of, my, one of our former senior research associates who now does fundraising for one of the major political parties constantly tells me, Paul, you have friends who operate in an environment of fundraising, you just don't know it because they don't talk about it. You have to ask. It's called making the ask, and there's plenty of, of research and background on how to make the ask, but you have to be confident in what you've built and confident in the value that you're adding so that you then make, to ask, make the ask to those in your network for resources or for in-kind contributions or for reputational value excellence by association, assistance with branding, you really need to think holistically about the value that different partners can add in addition to the typical, can you send me a check, fundraising mm -hmm. type of approach. Mm -hmm. Sure, so I, that sounds like, I mean, how you sustain now, right? It, it seems like that, that's sort of what you're talking about. I guess I'm, I'm wondering in the beginning, when you're when you're brand new, and your credibility is somewhat in the air, um, how you figure out a way to get that startup money essentially, you know, to, to get people invested in you early, so that you can eventually get to that point where you you know you have this reputation, and then you know grabbing money here and there uh, isn't <laughs> right. I know, that's, that's not really what I mean. But, you know, um, it seem it seems a little easier to s sustain after you've built your reputation, but the startup money, I guess, is sort of what I was I was wondering about. Yeah, it's think about the nature of your when you're trying to raise funds and you're trying to gather in kind contributions and, and sponsorships. You want to be known as an excellent entity, a nonprofit that's committed to excellence, that provides excellent product, that is associated with excellence. And you do that by crafting an advisory board. Because if you're a 30-something or a late 20-something, marketing yourself, marketing your idea, you oftentimes think my entire value is encapsulated in my value as an individual and my two or three colleagues who I'm working with or in my vision. Your value also includes the senior professionals that you know and that you are able to sell on yourself and on your idea and on your commitment to excellence. So come up with an advisory board of a dozen or so um, senior professionals in whatever area it is that you'll be building your nonprofit, and they then vouch for you. Simply by agreeing to be on your advisory board, they've vouched for your commitment to excellence, they've vouched for your credibility, and then when you're seeking that startup funding, that seed funding, they can help to make some introductions, but quite frankly, it's excellence by association. If they've signed off, on your project, on your vision, then when you pitch to a small family foundation or to some of these, these startup organizations or even these, these um, spot financing that they have on the internet now, uh, I know it's not called spot financing, it's something, crowdsourcing. Right. You've, got a, you've got a community of senior folks that have, have vouched for you. And then you don't go hunting big game on your first day out. You go hunting for the smaller game. I am surprised how many 
foundations out there provide grants of, of $20,000, $25,000. Now, we all want to go shake down you know, one of the big dogs yeah. and, and get a half a million dollar grant to start off your nonprofit. But if you're clever about leveraging your resources, if you've got some office space donated, you have some technology space donated, if you have some of these high-tech companies um, who donate a lot of the, the back-end infrastructure, there are so many things that a nonprofit simply does not have to purchase. Don't purchase them. And then when you are able to secure two or three twenty, twenty-five thousand dollar grants, that goes a long way because you're not having to put it to overhead because you've got most of your overhead in in-kind contributions or in other types of, of sharing arrangements that you can leverage even that small amount of money. And it's like anything, once you begin to draw in those small amount of resources, use them appropriately, use them effect effectively, leverage them to say, yeah, we've done you know three peace negotiations on a $25,000 grant. Then the person who's thinking about giving you a quarter of a million dollars will be like, whoa, you can do a couple of dozen peace talks on a quarter of a million. You want to be value added. And I think that's the key to, to fundraising a little bit. Start with a small game, get off and running, and then go be looking for the larger contributions. You've talked about funding and having an advisory board and having friends and kind of being connected to some of the big law firms. What are some other aspects that go into sustaining a nonprofit besides these things? And In order to sustain a nonprofit for 20 years, you have to be committed to the entrepreneurial spirit. Um, I was raised in Cupertino in California, so it's, 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 in, my, it's in my DNA. Um, but every year, it's a startup. You don't start something up and then plateau. Every year, you have to approach your nonprofit as an entrepreneurial entity. What type of new space do you move into? Do you redesign your staffing structure? Do you redesign your fundraising approach? Do you, you know, revitalize various aspects of, of your relationship? You know, the key to success is to be constantly in that entrepreneurial startup mode, constantly evolving your vision. Now, you don't throw out the old and bring in the new, but you're constantly thinking about what should a global pro bono law firm do? And this is why it's important when you, when you nail your vision down early on, that it's a broad vision that can change and can adapt. Um, we initially started with war crimes prosecution. We've now moved into transitional justice. When we started, it was the Yugoslav Tribunal, followed by the Rwanda Sierra Leone and the International Criminal Court. Now there are a plethora of other mechanisms related to transitional justice, the value of victims' compensation, the cathartic process. And as an organization, you need to be able to say, right, we have a war crimes practice area. That now needs to be transitioned to a transitional justice practice area so we can provide value to our pro bono clients on the whole spectrum. Constitution work. We started with peace negotiations, and we discovered that there were a lot of constitutions that were being drafted during or immediately after peace negotiations, so we built the practice area on post-conflict constitutions. So you need to be able to be flexible enough to amend your mission, but you also have to stay true to your core mission. You can't become an institution that then chases the resources and bids on every type of project that comes through public international law, for instance, or human rights, or sustainable development. You need to pick the two or three things that you care about, that your advisory board cares about, that your team cares about, and stay committed to them, but be entrepreneurial about how you provide the assistance and the resources that your organization is committed to. Okay, well, thank you so much for, for joining us today, Sam, Meg, Christy, uh, and those of you listening to the podcast. 
If you'd like to know more about the Public International Law and Policy Group, or PILPG for short, please follow us on Facebook, on Twitter, Instagram, and on our website, pilpg.org. If you have a tea or a discussion question, let us know on Twitter at hashtag tea with PILPG. Until next time, this is Tea with PILPG, brewing excellence around the world.